Hear now the word of God. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Lord, would you teach us this morning what true worship really is? Would you teach us to love you truly and to love you fully? And in so doing, would you bring glory to yourself through your people? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you remember... About a month back, we were in the middle of Jesus's conversation with this woman of Samaria. And in that conversation, Jesus offered her living water. Part of the way that he showed her the living water was to point out that she had already been searching for it in her personal life. And the thing that he pointed to was actually her private life. How was she engaged in these many relationships with these men? And so part of what That involved exposing this reality of her life, the fact that she was thirsty, the fact that she needed the living water was he had to bring up this issue of sin. And in the last passage, the last thing he said to her was, you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. In other words, he confronted her very directly about the need for forgiveness And about the reality of her sin and her response, which we see this morning is, you must be a prophet that you know this about me. And then in our passage this morning, she raises an objection, something that she thinks stops her from being able to do what Jesus is calling her to do. Something that is holding her back from keeping what Jesus is saying. Now, it may actually be that what she's trying to do is distract from this discussion about her personal life. But I don't think that's the case because later on she brings up her personal life when she goes into the city and tells everybody about what Jesus has done for her. He actually brings she actually brings up to them her private life. So I don't think she's distracting from that at all. I do not think that she is bringing up this issue of worship because she just wants to talk about something different. She brings up the issue of worship because there is something that she believes is keeping her back. Um, Notice this about Jesus' approach to the woman, though. Notice that he doesn't keep pressing on the sin issue and pressing and pressing until it brings her to tears. Uh, He doesn't shame her. He doesn't name call her until she submits and cries cries uncle. Um, Basically, he plants this seed and then he moves on to this other thing that needs to be addressed in her life. 
So she perceives Jesus as a prophet, which we know is putting it mildly. He's the son of God. Of course, he's also a prophet. He speaks for God. But in her mind, she thinks he's a prophet. And so she thinks, who better to talk to than a prophet about this very thing that's keeping me from worship? And so she says to Jesus, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Now, she's a Samaritan. She's from a different culture. She's from a different group than the group of Jewish people that Jesus is from. She's talking about Samaria, and their central sanctuary of worship was on Mount Gerizim. The kingdom of Israel used to be united. You had the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, and they were both together under David and Solomon. And then David's, David, uh, Solomon had sons who split the kingdom. You had Judah in the south and everybody else in the north. And when they set up and when they split in 900 BC, the northern kingdom began to set up their own worship sites so that they wouldn't have to travel to Jerusalem to worship anymore. And of course, the northern kingdom went steeply downhill after they did that. But this, that's what this woman is talking about. She's saying, we have a different way of worshiping. We have a different place of worshiping. We're very different from the Jews. And then she says this. She says, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And so there is an argument the woman is making here. This is why I don't think that this is just meant to be a red herring. A red herring is whenever you are in a conversation with someone and you are on a subject and then they immediately change the subject to something else. That's called a red herring in logic anyway. And, and so this is not a red herring. There's an argument here. And here's the argument she's making. I think she's arguing Even if I did get more religious, Jesus, even if I did clean up my life, even if I did stop sinning, it still wouldn't matter because I'm forbidden in Jerusalem. She says, I'm a Samaritan. I'm not allowed to enter the temple even to worship. She's not welcome in church. That's basically what she's saying. I'm not the kind of person that goes to church. I'm not welcome in church. I couldn't worship God truly from where I am anyway. So what's the point? This is all an abstract discussion, Jesus. I'm a Samaritan. Who I am and where I'm from keeps me from taking God seriously in my life. Surely we know people who see themselves that way. Jesus is certainly not the last person to meet somebody who feels like they don't belong in church. Um, I think it's important that everyone we meet knows that they were made to worship God. They were made to follow God. There is not a type of person who's supposed to be in church. All people are supposed to be in church. All types of people are supposed to be in church. And so this is what we were all made for. This is what we were created for. This is the purpose for which we were put into this world to glorify the one who put us in this world. And that includes this Samaritan woman with a spotty record. But Jesus hears this argument from this woman and he responds with an answer that would have rocked the Jewish world. It would have deeply troubled the Jewish people. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. By the way, this is the central statement that Stephen makes that gets him stoned in the book of Acts. Jesus is in, or Stephen is in front of all of these uh, Jewish people, and he tells them the gospel was always meant to go out from Jerusalem. The gospel was always meant to go out from this place. The purpose of the gospel is not to bring people into this one central place, to this one temple, and this one city. That's what Stephen said. And he said, worship is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of location anymore. And in essence, that's what Jesus is telling this woman. He says, don't write this conversation off. 
Just because some of the debates over worship make you think you'll never be included. And then he tells her what true worship is. And you will notice from Jesus' answer that true worship is really something that even she can be a part of. Jesus wants her to know that, yes, even the Samaritan woman can worship God. Now, before we go on, there's something really important that we have to address, and it's the question of what is worship. Because if we just use the word worship over and over again, and we don't have a grasp of what we mean by it, then it's just going to be a religious-sounding word. And I don't want to just say religious words up here. I want them to actually make sense to you and connect with you. And so we can mean different things when we say the word worship. Um, Sometimes we talk about worship and we mean it in a very formal, organized way. Uh, There are different kinds of worship when it comes to formal worship. Our book of church order for our own church mentions family worship. That's when families get together. Uh, whether it's a husband and wife, whether it's uh, parents and children, where families get together, they read the Bible together, they explain the Bible to the children for a few minutes at least, uh, and then they pray. Sometimes families also sing when they have family worship, but family worship doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be heavily involved. It doesn't have to be a one-hour service where the children are falling asleep. Uh, Parents should make private family worship something that's engaging and exciting. So there's, there's family worship. Then there's private worship, you know, where it's just you and your Bible and you're reading and you, you have lots of freedom. You can sing, you can stand, you can sit, you can kneel. It's the time that you spend with God one-on-one. And then there's corporate worship, which is what we're doing here today. Um, and usually when we have corporate worship, you know, we perform acts of worship. Things are done according to what the Bible actually says, according to specific regulations with specific elements that God explicitly commands for us. And so when we have corporate worship together, the, um, the session is, is responsible to make sure that we do things that God tells us to do in the Bible, things that are commanded in Scripture. It includes the reading and preaching of Scripture. There is a call to worship at the beginning of the service. Uh, We include the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, We include giving of tithes and offerings. Why do we do these things? Because they're commanded in the Bible. All of them must be part of our worship in order for it to be true biblical corporate worship. And so whenever you look at our uh, order of service for the week, just understand that every part of the service is very carefully thought out. It's very carefully planned, always asking the question, has God commanded this? And that's what we do. If we have a a, a service and there is no prayer and we're just singing songs, then what are we doing? Well, it's a hymn sing. Or uh, if we have a sermon without a prayer, then it's a theology lecture. Or if we have prayer, but we don't have a sermon, that's a prayer meeting. Um, and, but when you have all of these things together in the called corporate gathering of the body, that is corporate worship. And so all of these things come together uh, in this one present moment, like what we're doing this morning for corporate worship. That's oftentimes what we mean when we talk about worship. But oftentimes when the Bible talks about worship, it means something else. It means the term in a much more general sense. Uh, worship in the broadest sense is something, is something that can be done almost anywhere in any area of our life. Um, for example, Paul tells us, he says, whatever you eat or whether you drink, do it all to the glory of God. So, so isn't it interesting to think that you could eat a hot dog to the glory of God? 
Every time I eat a hot dog, I thank God for Acts chapter 15. And it's a great opportunity for me to give glory to God every time I eat a hot dog, which I try to eat less of than I used to, but still. Um, Or if you have a glass of orange juice in the morning, it is an opportunity to give glory to God. How can you give glory to God with a glass of, of orange juice? You remember that God brought rain on the earth and that he gave us ground for that tree to grow out of. And he caused the sun to shine on that tree so the nutrients would travel into that orange. And he gave someone the strength or the ability or the cleverness to squeeze that orange into a carton and bring it to you and drink it. And all of that happens because God has been kind to you. So even a glass of orange juice with even a moment's reflection is an opportunity to glorify God. That's worship. It's not corporate worship. I, we don't have any orange juice here today. Um, that's not what we do here. But it's an opportunity. It's one of the ways that we worship God. Whatever we eat, whatever we drink, whatever we do, we should do it all to the glory of God. What is worship? At its most basic level, worship just means recognizing God's greatness. It means recognizing the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God. It is this visceral and accurate response that we should have to the truth about God and who he is and what he's done. And so because God is who he is, because he's the creator of the sky and the land and the sea and the stars and the sun and the moon and the galaxies, when we feel tiny and dwarfed by those things, we should especially feel small because we know the God who made them all simply by speaking. It is difficult to conceive of a being who could create all of the universe by speaking who is not great. And so when we think of God, when we think of the good things that he's done, it should cause worship in our hearts. And we should do this every day. And ideally, even though this seems unrealistic, every moment of our lives. Now, here's the life that we live. Every day of our lives is a tug of war between the things that we know we should worship and the things that we want to worship instead. Um, We are tempted to worship all sorts of other things than God in our daily lives. We're, We're constantly tempted to live in a way that says that other things other than God are great and important and superior. I suspect our greatest struggle, and especially the greatest struggle of our society, is not that we worship God, but we just don't get the particulars right. Our biggest struggle is that we're constantly tempted not to worship God at all, not to even recognize God, to go an entire day without thinking about God. And so in the busyness of of life, careers, responsibilities, families, in the midst of glowing screens that cry out for our eyeballs, to be fixated on them, I suspect that this temptation often wins out. And the sad part is worshiping God is really what we were made for. And everything else is what we end up gravitating towards. And as creatures, anytime we aren't doing what we were made to do, anytime we aren't living in light of our purpose, we are going to find our hearts frustrated and puzzled. So as long as there's this sharp disjunction between what we should be and what we are, we're going to find inner conflict and we're going to find misery. It's like our souls are telling us all the time, you were made to worship God. You were made to love these things. Why are you giving these things so much attention? And yet you keep doing it. What can we do? Well, we can be told by Jesus what real worship is. And this morning he tells the Samaritan woman what true worship is. He says, true worship is worship in spirit. And true worship is worship 
and truth. And that's our two points this morning. So first he says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. Now, uh, notice the way Jesus puts it in verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. So you see, the way that we're meant to live and worship is rooted in the essence and nature of God. He says, we worship like this because he is like that. So there's, there's a logic to Jesus' argument. He says, God's like this, so you should live like this. Um, what does it mean for God to be a spirit? It means he's invisible. It means he doesn't have a body. It means that he doesn't occupy physical space. Space. It means that, uh, in other words, God is, is a, a being who cannot be measured with physical instruments. As hard as you may search, as long as you may, as long as you may look around the world and throughout the universe, you will not find any traces of the physical existence of God. You will find his effects at every step. You will find uh, the, the reality that he is there all around you, surrounding you. You live in it. You walk in it. You move in it every single day. You won't see him as hard as you might look. And so what that means is that God is not about externals. He is not about visible things. He is not about appearances. Um, and just as God is not about putting on a good show or, or doing things just to be seen, so you and I, Jesus is saying, should not be focused on externals or appearances either. Worship means having a heart that is fixed on God, not on just going through the motions, okay? He's pressing back against two things when he says this. One of the things he's pressing back against is a common error of worship, and that's formalism. Um, It's the idea that if we worship at the right time, at the right place, in the right way, if we do everything perfectly in line with what Scripture says, you know, let's say we have a perfectly pristine worship service where we do everything according to the letter. We follow every jot, every tittle. We can have all of those things, and yet it could still not be worship in spirit. Why? Because we can have all the externals right and yet have no real love for God. We can get all the details and specifics of worship right. But if we're just going through the motions and we don't love God and we don't love our brothers and sisters, then Paul says we're just a clanging gong. We're just a noisemaker. Worship in spirit transcends the details in order to fixate on the God who made us for his worship in the first place. Um, You see this formalism in the Old Testament. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 4 God is talking to these people who are so proud that they have this temple to worship in. And God chastises them. He says, do not trust in these lying words saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They are fixated on the location. They feel secure because they have the right place. They trust in the temple of the Lord, but they don't trust in the Lord of the temple. The problem is there in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Well, we know that God wants sacrifices because it's in the Old Testament. But he says, I'd rather have love. He says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. If he had to pick, he would rather you love him and know him than that you make the sacrifices, even though they're commanded in the Old Testament. 
These people are fixated on the sacrificial acts. They don't love God, though. They're bringing sacrifices for a God that they despise. And God knows it, and he hates it. It's easy to fool ourselves into thinking that because we came to the right place at the right time on the right day, dressed the right way, singing the right things, standing at the right moment, giving the right gifts, praying the right prayers, we can tell ourselves that we're truly worshiping. And yet Jesus says true worship is worship in spirit. It isn't that God doesn't care how he's worshiped. He does care. He tells us all over the Bible that he cares. But what good is pristine, perfect worship If we have no love, it's worthless. In fact, God says he hates it. To worship in spirit means to worship sincerely. It means to worship from the heart. It means to not be focused on the externals to the detriment of the heart. To worship in spirit means that we love God no matter where we are, no matter what the situation. That's the first thing. Worship God in spirit. Second, though, Jesus says that those who worship him must worship in truth. Worship in truth means that we have to know who God is if we're going to worship him. There are things God tells us about himself that we may not naturally like all that much. Um, Because think about this. For sinners, the idea that God is holy is a very unpleasant thought. The idea that God is holy and he cares about sin is very troubling if you sinned which we all have. And, 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 you know, it means that God might have a different opinion about you than you have about you. He might feel differently about you than you do. You, you maybe say, I love myself. I think I'm great. I think I'm wonderful. But if God opened his mouth and spoke to you, he might not have. In fact, he won't have the same answer. Um, and yet knowing who God is helps us to worship we see this in action in, in Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Listen to, listen to this. Listen to the logic again of why we worship. It says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. If this was a logic class, we'd take it apart. You could make a syllogism out of this. Uh, God is a consuming fire. Therefore, we should offer him acceptable worship. So, The author of Hebrews is thinking this out loud. He's thinking getting God right means worshiping him. Knowing who God is enables us to worship him. Getting God wrong results in idolatry. In this case, if we know that our God is a consuming fire, the author of Hebrews says we will offer worship that is reverent and we will be in awe of him. We may be worshiping someone, but if we don't know God then it won't be God that we're worshiping. See, when Jesus says that we should worship in spirit, he's confronting our tendency to focus on externals. And it's possible that we can be so focused on the externals that we go through all of it without loving God and without loving our neighbor. That's a possible problem. But the opposite error is very much alive. The opposite error is not formalism, it's sentimentalism. And we see that in abundance around ourselves. Um, Rather than preaching the word of God, many churches are becoming places of therapeutic lessons where God exists to fix us, to make us feel better, but not really specifically to bring himself glory. About 100 years ago, there was a theologian, uh, his name was Friedrich Schleiermacher, and Schleiermacher 
wrote a great deal about emotionalism and sentimentalism, except he wrote about it very favorably. And Schleiermacher gave his definition of worship. He said, worship is a feeling of dependence. He said, as long as you have a vague feeling of dependence on some sort of higher power, then you're worshiping. And that teaching of Schleiermacher has become a intimately involved part of especially American Christianity. And so now uh, Americans are very focused on having emotional experiences singing during church. Um, At the same time, they're supposed to be encountering the God of the universe. And so um, churches that minimize truth for the sake of experience are everywhere. They're everywhere. Um, Aaron and I, we lived in Phoenix for a number of years. And there were churches all over Phoenix. You didn't have trouble finding a church. But the, the problem that we found was that we couldn't find a church to go to on a regular basis that actually was going to feed us the Bible. Now, I know that sounds really arrogant. I know you're probably listening thinking, this guy, he's only going to be happy in a Presbyterian church where everybody's frowning, you know, and that kind of thing. No, very unpicky. We were not picky people. We were just going from church to church just looking for someone to preach the Bible, and we struggled to, to, to find a church. And this is what we found, and, and I, I don't even think I'm being unfair. Every Sunday, we would go to a different church, and I remember at one point, we had a, a month straight where we went to four different churches, and each church, it was like, it was like the sermon would be 10 steps to a happy family, you know, five methods for a purposeful life, three rules for handling money. And it was just all very therapeutically focused. And I think what happened was these churches discovered that if you, if you preach these kind of messages, you do draw people in. And so the result was churches that were filled to the top with people who wanted to have better families and they wanted to have uh, better finances. I mean, who doesn't want those things? Who wants those things to go bad? And also that kind of preaching isn't really threatening. You don't have to deal with sin when you do that. And so because it's what people wanted, you know, the estimate and the preaching in my estimate was very shallow. And the thing we were looking for was to have God and his holiness lifted up and presented to us. And it was a struggle to find that. Now, here was the interesting thing in these churches where they're preaching about finances and family and and things like that. When the music would come on and the lights would come down and the electric guitar would come on, which I love those things. I just want to go to a concert to see those things. Um, When those things would happen, suddenly people would turn on the waterworks. And, and their hands would go up and they would be swaying and they would be having this extraordinary emotional experience. And I think you were just presented with the God who gives you three methods to better finances. How does that God bring you to such an expression as this? And what you had was teaching that didn't connect you to who God was. And then you had worship that created a tremendous emotional experience. All I could think was, how could such a God bring someone to tears? The only God who can truly be worshipped is the God who can truly be known. And the only way that God has given us to know him is in Scripture. And so this means not just for the corporate worship of God's people, that we need the preaching of the word of God. And it also means that, um, that, that in our own lives, everything we live, everything we believe has to be guided and understood in light of Scripture. Because what God tells us about himself is intended to feed the heart. And in believers, that produces the sort of worship that God is seeking. Without that, without knowing who God is, there is no worshiping God. 
There is no worshiping in truth. Without truth, we're just guessing. We're just being emotional and we're just guessing. In the book of Exodus, Aaron has this moment where the people are really pushing him to worship their way. And so at the foot of Mount Sinai, Aaron gives in and they make the, the golden calf and they worship God by means of this, of this idol. And in Aaron gives an explanation to Moses about why this happened. Aaron says, you know the people that they're set on evil. And Rick Phillips gives a paraphrase. This is what he says. He says, the people don't like a biblical approach to worship. They don't enjoy prayer and Bible reading and serious preaching. They want something more lively, so I gave it to them. That's Aaron standing at the foot of this mountain. Now, here's the truth. God hasn't left us to guess. He loves us too much for that. The the world is like sheep without a shepherd. They have no one to, to, to direct them, to tell them what's true. They have no north star to guide them. But you see, God loves his people. And he loves us so much that he has revealed himself. If he hadn't revealed himself, we would just be bumping into each other in the dark. He has left us free from the prison of guesswork about who he is and what pleases him. And see, worshiping God takes, takes thought. Um, he gave us minds, and he gave each and every one of us minds for a reason. Um, Kent Hughes says this. He says, worship is not a mindless activity. It includes mental interaction with the truth about God. But we already saw that worship in spirit means it isn't a heartless activity either. So if we're just marked by intellectualism and externalism in worship, we've missed the mark. But if we're just about emotionalism and heart in worship, but we don't know who God is, then we've missed God. Because we're supposed to worship him in truth and in spirit. You see, our God has revealed himself and he protects us from a lifestyle of guesswork. This woman's argument this morning is that worship as she knows it erects barriers to keep people like her out. That's what the problem is. And Jesus answers her. Jesus answers that objection and he says, start changing how you think about worship. Because when I'm finished, it won't matter where you're standing so long as you're standing with me. Those old divisions are disappearing. It doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan, if you're Egyptian, if you're Israelite, if you're Greek, if you're African, if you're Roman. The heart of worship is faith in Christ and a love for God. How does Paul put it in Ephesians 2.14? He's talking about Jesus and he says, He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What has God done? God has made it so that everybody from every group can come no matter what. Jews, Gentile, and every other ethnic division you can think of, the walls are torn down and we are brought together in Christ. And you know, tonight we're going to go worship with the saints from Sweet Rest at their facility. And I hope you come, even if you often miss evening worship. Why is that important to me? It's, it's important to me in part because God has broken down the dividing wall between ethnic groups by faith in Jesus. And in part, I hope you'll come because it's a reminder that the debates about location are dated arguments. Jesus says, worship isn't just in one spot. Worship isn't just in one place. If we worship in spirit and in truth, then we can worship him anywhere. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, would you help us to know you truly? 
Help us to know your word so well that we're acquainted with you and all the good you have for us. Help us, though, to be protected from believing that it is sufficient for us to believe the right things and have a perfect service, but with no love for you or your people. Give us souls that love you and give us minds that know you truly. We need all these things and they can only come from your hand. And so we pray that you would grant them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.